So you're, uh, you did a biography on Juanita Brooks. Correct. Um, why, um, what led you to do something on Juanita Brooks? Uh, tell us a story or two that would capture the essence of, of how remarkable you feel she might have been. And then talk about your feelings around the churches in 2007, uh, the churches, quote, semi-apology regarding the Mountain Meadows Massacre. It's a big topic, but I'll set you loose. On 1973, Juanita came to, uh, she'd have been 75 then. She came to uh, Weber State and spoke to us in the special collections room in the afternoon. And she talked, among other things, about her uh, insistence on publishing in her uh, biography of John D. Lee, uh, published 11 years after the her history of the Mount Meadows Massacre had been published. She wanted to publish the reinstate the fact that the church had reinstated John D. Lee. In, in other words, they had excommunicated him way posthumously. Back, yeah, for uh, his participation. In fact, he was the only person executed for participating in the massacre, and he'd been excommunicated. And her purpose in writing both those books was partly to vindicate John D. Lee, not to exonerate him from participation, uh, but from, for having been singled out as the only one among uh, f- about 55 prominent Mormons who were at the scene uh, at the massacre and uh, a lot of others that were involved in the decision-making that weren't at the scene. Well. Uh, the church had insisted that the Lee family not make generally known the reinstatement of their ancestor. Well, when Juanita Brooks got... Do we know why? Do we have a sense or even a guess as to why? Well, I'm going to guess that it was because they were admitting that Brigham had driven a bargain and uh, for... in. He'd done a, a plea bargain if they focused on John D. Lee and leave the rest of <coughs> his Mormon confreres alone, then okay, and that happened, said Juanita. And I'm afraid I think the church thought that reinstating John D. Lee might be admission that Brigham did that. That's just unthinkable for a prophet to scapegoat somebody. Scapegoat somebody and, but... Uh, the Lee family were so excited, they did not, uh, they were told if, if this becomes a big public f- issue, President McKay will rescind the, the uh, reinstatement. And Juanita was summoned to the office of, of Stapley, um, Delbert Stapley, apostle, uh, down Temple Square, and, or the church office building, and and he leaned on her in person not to publish that. She, uh, she said uh, she promised not to publish it in the, uh, the first edition uh, of the uh, biography. What she didn't tell him, that there were only going to be a thousand copies of that printed for the Lee family, and then the printer would put a new, new plates in and issue a new edition of it, and it would carry at the very end, this announcement of the reinstatement. So she was deceiving but him a little bit? He felt so. 
Now, but in arguing with him, she tried to persuade him that it was the Lord wanted that reinstatement put in there. She said, I have had unknown obstacles to publishing this biography. It's been ready. And I now believe it was the Lord's way of, te- of waiting till the reinstatement had occurred so that we can get it in. That's my testimony. And she said, she didn't identify it as Delbert Stapley. I learned that in my research. He was an later. apostle, right? He was an apostle. She said, he slapped the table and said, it is of the devil. In other words, her revelation was from the... Trumped. Got trumped. Yeah. And, and she said to us in that group that Saturday, that day at Weber State, she said, I looked him in the eye and I said, brother, in this matter, I know the will of the Lord as well as you do. And I thought, well, I love that woman. That's what got me going on reading the two books for the first time. And I wrote a, a that little essay called the Mormon uh, Juanita Brooks, the the Mormon historian as tragedian, and it was very, it's still being used in certain classes at BYU. And then, uh, and then the University of Utah Press asked me to write the biography on basis of that, which I eventually got around to doing. But uh, Give our listeners a sense for the the feat of doing what she did as a mother in the 50s, as a woman, um, against all odds, in a very conservative church. She lived in St. George, a housewife. Uh, she was a, a mother of uh, both children and stepchildren and uh, active in the church and and she still wrote that book, and she still researched it. And what she wrote was so well-written and so well-researched that it stood as the classic statement of the massacre for 50 years, and only now is, is being challenged for that position. I've heard a story yeah. about how she kept her writing materials in a... She kept, she kept her typewriter under a, a, on a, under a cloth, so, and she had her ironing board with, a, with damp ironing on it, and if a neighbor called, she'd cover the typewriter and be up ironing. One neighbor remarked, you know, you're ironing every morning, aren't you? <laughs> he says, I didn't say this to her, but only if you, were, you only knew it, you, you're the, I'm only ironing while you're here. But at any rate... And she was hiding out why? Well, it wasn't a woman's role in St. George to be writing history. But as she got the, the book moved along... Uh, in the late the late forties, getting near, she had a lot of qualms about excommunication. She had watched her friend Fawn Brody be ex. I mean, she she was keenly aware of Fawn's excommunication, and she for no man knows my history, right? And she uh, 1945. and so uh, she feared excommunication, and uh, I suppose she came closest to it not then, but after doing what Delbert Stately thought was lying to him, he proposed to President McKay to, to excommunicate her. But there's a story I ought to tell you about that. But before I do, the, the, uh, I later discovered in my research that Juanita was exaggerating in talking to us at the group. She told us she did what she wanted to do. In this I know the will of the Lord as well as you do, brother. I'm convinced on 
other things I researched about that episode and, and the detail her husband Will gives in the, his diary at that time, things I didn't realize till I was researching for the biography, I think Juanita was one emotionally battered woman. I bet she didn't say that, but I do think she emerged from there having decided what she was going to do. She lived up to her promise, the first edition, no mention, but the second edition would follow immediately, and and she would accept excommunication if that's what it took. I think, and I think she truly was closest to it. So I think she was telling us there what she wanted, would have liked to have said, and felt, and experienced, and felt. Uh, I've learned since uh, in a, from a, some research that that uh, Greg Prince did in his biography of of uh, President McKay that uh, Delbert Stapley uh, uh, recommended to President McKay that she be excommunicated and he said simply, well, I'll leave her alone. And And Delbert told that to a friend from Australia who turned up accident, coincidentally in a, at a home of a friend in Salt Lake where Juanita was that afternoon. And he told her the story about Delbert Stapley wanting... Delbert told... This friend told Juanita that Delbert had recommended excommunication but that President McKay had said, uh, I'll leave her alone. And he said that Juanita took both his hands and tears came into her eyes as she heard that. So uh, she finally realized that how close she had come, but that President May, McKay himself, far from rescinding the excommunication, I mean rescinding the reinstatement of John D. Lee, also refused to excommunicate her. And do you have a sense that she was a sincere believer? Or? Well... People argue that she wasn't by uh, later in her later life, but uh, on the whole, given the fact that people go up and down a little in their faith, I think Juanita was a believer to the end. She argued with uh, Dale Morgan over Joseph Smith uh, when Fawn Brody's book came out. Dale Morgan was a, an unbeliever. He was an agnostic. And uh, Juanita, Juanita could take... Joseph Smith with all his faults and still believe he was a prophet. And as Richard Bushman shows us, that's the way you've got to do it. <laughs> you see, uh, Richard gives you all this detail show the faults and foibles of Joseph, but Richard's a believer. Do you, do you see, do you see uh, Juanita Brooks as a hero? Oh yeah, very much for me. She's been a model for me. To me, she's a model of dissent that works. Because I think the church's building of the monuments down and buying the side of the monument and building monuments on it is directly related to Juanita's work. It might have happened, but it wouldn't have happened as fast if Juanita hadn't written her book when she did. It took 50 years, 40 years at least, before that first monument appeared. I do think that people like Will Bagley ought to get off the anti-church 
bit. Will's big, thick book on Juanito, I think, will be very appealing to Gentile readers because it is so anti-Mormon. But I think, I think it, it's trying to kick a dead horse. And, uh, and the spirit of Juanita would be, well, look, let's look at the facts and then let's get over trying to keep the resentment going. Uh, so, yes, I, I think uh, Juanita's big message for me is you take things uh, like the massacre and you realize that it was a tragedy for the, for the perpetrators as well as for the victims and you have to get to some sense of forgiveness for them and be thankful that you aren't put into the circumstances where you would be tested by that. So one of compassion and empathy. Right. Yeah. And that's the attitude you should have rather than wanting to, to press the church's face further into the gravel rather than realizing the church has basically made its apology for the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Do you feel the same thing about the blacks then? That maybe the church has already apologized? Well, yes and no. I don't know. Different, different topic for you. Church has a hard time apologizing overtly, doesn't it, explicitly. It has to, you have to interpret, interpret it. It's still got to apologize for what it does to women and, and for what it does to Heavenly Mother, but that'll come. So what do you think of the uh, latest statements about the Mount Meadows Massacre by the church? Is that uh, a further apology? Is that a, that's, a wonderful that's step wonder, forward? It's a wonderful step forward. The fact that, that, that Richard Turley could uh, publish that uh, 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 brief summary of their book in the uh, Ensign, the, the beauty of that is now the rank-and-file church member knows that it's okay to read about and talk about the Mountain Meadows Massacre. And there are a lot of topics that are still, like an article we've recently published in uh, Dialogue, and we'll be talking about it at the Sun's Little Northwest Sunstone Symposium, the Wither Noah's Flood, uh, uh, can be reinterpreted as to referring, the scriptural reference to the Noah's Flood, referring to a a localized regional flood rather than a global flood, which science says is impossible. So right. If you had to sum, this is just going to come out of left field. But if you had to summarize the lessons of Mountain Meadows, what what would the lessons be for us today? That human beings uh, need to read into their own read their own behavior closely enough to see how they provoke one another. I happen to believe that the massacre at Mountain Meadows uh, had an awfully lot to do with the American public back east. Uh, America of the 18, uh, 1850s, uh, the the, it wasn't divided into sane, civilized non-Mormons and these fanatic Mormons. It was divided into uh, groups of people all who vilified one another. The rhetoric of anti-Mormonism that came out of the, the, the earliest 
existence of the church in Palmyra, and then Kirtland, and then Missouri, and then Illinois, uh, you can see that the, the fanaticism that created the massacre in uh, southern Utah was alive and well among non-Mormons in back east, and they had given the Mormons good doses of it. So that in a way, even though true, the, the Fancher train did not merit at all what happened to it by any civilized standard, uh, for the men who did it, it was a, it was a blow. Uh, it, it was, they were still fighting Nauvoo and far west and the, the purgings uh, from, from uh, back east. Uh, I think the the problem with Will's book, Will Bagley, is he wants he still wants to side a, a sane and civilized non-Mormon America against the Mormons, who even today refuse to recognize their says says Will their responsibility, uh, rather than realizing that the, that massacre grew out of of a a large, not a Mormon culture of violence only, an American culture of violence. That that had a lot of the. That's you've got to go all the way back to there to start explaining the Mountain Meadows massacre. Not unlike what we're experiencing maybe today, with with the war. Failing to see our own contribution to what's going on in Iraq, which ought to be very visible. So that's not just a Mormon lesson. No, it's a national lesson. Human, human lesson. Um, you talk, you talk a, a bit in your book about um, retrenchment on the liberal Mormon front. What's that about? It's about the 1990s when liberal Mormonism uh, took it in the chops, <laughs> big step back, and I don't know if it's recovered. Uh, and were you uh, were you heavily involved in dialogue in Sunstone? Oh yes, and uh, the the church denounced symposia, and everyone knew what that meant. And uh, uh, the the committee on strengthening the church distributed a lot of summonses uh, all over the Utah area, and uh, the many Mormon writers. Uh, contributors to dialogue and Sunstone were evoked, uh, convoked, and and the uh, September sixth were disciplined. Uh, How much of uh, that did we bring on ourselves versus was merit? You know, versus was unjustified uh, in terms of using harsh rhetoric, in terms of being too strident in the criticisms. Do you do you, as a metaphor for what we just talked about? Do you see it as a two sided affair? Uh, the, the clamping down on intellectuals and dissenters, or do you, do you see them as mostly victims? They, uh, well, uh, certainly they provoked it. They made choices and uh, got the results of their choices. Uh, the, yeah, I think, I think you could have been more tactful. You know, uh, Gene England didn't go under to the uh, with the September sixth, but 
his his slide out of favor at BYU started uh, at that famous Sunstone meeting in which he stood up and under <laughs> in the camera uh, denounced the the committee on strengthening the the membership. Around what year uh, was that? Oh, that would have been ninety two, I think. Okay. Uh, so he stood up and said, that, and this is the committee that was investigating dissenters and, yeah, and keeping sending, files on right. people and sending the, telling yeah. stake presidents and bishops to interview right. people and to start right. putting pressure on them. And it was that same session that got Levina in trouble, I believe, that she wrote an article that was published, I guess, in Dialogue, and then that got her excommunicated. But at any rate, uh, the... the uh, I, I I gave a Sunstone speech in '93, uh, urging liberal Mormons to retreat uh, and not confront and uh, just survive uh, for a while and, and stay in the church. But the, those who are on the church payroll to stay on it, and not lose their jobs. Uh, the uh, and I spoke to what was coming uh, with Levina, for example, that hadn't quite happened yet. I said, those who just have to make a stand here and go out, well, then don't, at least don't abandon Mormonism and keep, keep going. Uh, Levina did that. I'm sure it wasn't my advice, but I think she just, that's her nature, but some of the others didn't. Uh, but I said that I would. I said if I were excommunicated, I would show up next Sunday and on the back row and sleep as usual in sacrament meeting. But uh, the... Did, did the, you think there was a... Were you scared that you might be... Well, I didn't know. Uh, I, I wasn't very scared. However, the next spring, my stake president phoned me and very deferentially asked me if he could visit me in my office at the English department at Weaver State. I was chairman of the department at that moment. Was this for your book or for your well, speeches I, at Sunstone? Or? I didn't know what it was for. All I knew is that other people had been being summoned. What do you guess it might have been for? Well, I know. I'm going to oh, tell okay. you. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. But at any rate, he was very deferential to me. Uh, he was a former student of mine, incidentally. But he came to my office. He came in, and I came out behind my desk, and I sat by uh, facing him in the, the we each had a conference chair mano, mano. and he began asking me about my attitude toward the church and I simply I told him I had a, a, a that I was a liberal Mormon I certainly wasn't an anti-Mormon and that I I uh, valued my membership in the church and that I recognized the s- sovereignty of the first presidency and the twelve the Twelve and so on, and I spoke then of my heritage coming from a long line of Mormons and the big Mormon family, and, and I, I, I uh, said I valued all that, and I also I said I, I spoke of my, what I wrote in my essay, uh, uh, Christian by Yearning, I said I, I hoped for salvation and uh, would be grateful for it if, it if I were to wake up and find it was extended to me from death, and and he finally told me very anticlimactically the essay he'd come in for. It was a, an essay 
in Sunstone on the, uh, I called a hike to Timpanogos or something of that sort, where with family members I had gone to the summit of Timpanogos and looking down on Utah Valley where all those babies are born hand over fist, kind of written about what overpopulation, how overpopulation is fed by by the great value of love. And I don't mean just sexual love, I mean love for little children. Everybody loves little children. And and you've got an impulse to have more of them. And you overpopulate the earth. But he didn't seem much disturbed by that. He just he told me that that's what had sent him in. But as he left, he was so kind and all that I, I realized that I was off free, I was, uh, that I'd passed the interview. And uh, he was very... Uh, so I didn't have a, a difficult, a bad experience with it. How did you feel when the excommunications came down in September of 1993? Well, I didn't... I didn't... I, I regretted them and wished the church could accept, be more acceptive of a liberal contingent. Uh, some ways the church is more liberal now than it used to be. I think its attitude on the Mountain Meadows Massacre is one evidence, but on the other hand, uh, it seems to me that BYU as a campus is turning more and more non-scientific, uh, insistent upon the the disparity between science and faith rather than working to show their harmony as it, as it ought to be doing. And uh, I see quite a bit of evidence of that and I'm, I regret that. It's too bad. I don't know what will happen. The, little, the liberal Mormons like the little dog barking at the freight train, remember? Tell us that, about that. That, that the train doesn't know you're, the little dog's there and the little dog's in okay if it stays off the track, but the little dog's got to bark or it doesn't feel good. And that's what the liberal Mormon has to do, <laughs> has to keep telling the church, shape up. Church largely ignores it, goes its way. So is the barking t- of no consequence then? Little consequence. And that's just something we have to Well, you hope accept. it makes a difference. I put together a panel at Sunstone on uh, early return missionaries about four years ago. And it was a very mixed panel of the people on it. But a reporter from Deseret News showed up. And there was a very affirmative summary of that panel in the Deseret News, which startled me a little. The Trib is usually the newspaper that publishes Sunstone and uh, it, it seemed to me the church was willing to recognize that the that missions aren't for everybody uh, that that it needs some kind of reform in the way it preaches missions for everybody and the way it treats those who come home early and you cite that as an example where maybe... Might be uh, liberalizing a little. When it wants to. So should the dog keep barking? 
Yeah. Should. Has to. Um, what What is, tell me about the importance of sense and dialogue in your life and the extent to which you see it, them both as important to the church or to its members. And I don't mean to conflate the two, but I'll, I'll start that way and you can split them up if you want. Well, in a sense, the Sunstone and Dialogue and also the old uh, the uh, Association for Mormon Letters, which isn't in as bad odor as Sunstone and Dialogue, but they, uh, as I first really came to terms with them in the early 80s, I think they kept me a Mormon. And I don't know that I would have ever withdrawn my name voluntarily from the role to the church. I never had any impulse to do that. But as I said, I had no, I had little sense of investment in Mormonism, little sense that it had, there was anything for me in it. And I realized there are Mormons here who think I'm a Mormon. And in a sense, that made me one. Uh, I got my sense of having an investment in Mormonism from Gene England and Charlotte and Bruce Jorgensen and those friends who, Linda Silito and John, those people who were members of the first writing group that I belonged to, and uh, the, and the people I knew on the staffs at Sunstone and Dialogue and they, I realized there's a there is a Mormonism that I, I belong to. And I will say this, that to my observation, nine-tenths of those people are believers. They're liberal Mormons, but they're believers. Levina's a believer. Gene was a believer. Uh, just as fervently and sincerely as the most ardent conservative Mormon. And while I didn't pretend to be have a faith of that sort, if my closest approach to faith is a hope, the hope of a, the, the, the Christian by yearning, uh, uh, the fact that there was this sizable contingent of Mormons of this sort bonded me to the church. I then had my family, tr- the tradition and legacy of my family that bonded me, and I had... Uh, a group of contemporaries to bond with. It's very important, and they need to exist. They need to continue. They need to persist. Uh, We don't want either Sunstone or Dialogue to go under. And as far as I'm concerned, the symposium is vital, even though some people say you ought to rename it the Sunstone Conference, as if that would make a difference. But uh, whether or not uh, I think the outlet given by Sunstone Symposium has done immeasurable good for the church and that the denunciation of Symposia that directed chiefly at the Sunstone Symposium was misbegotten. It was wrong-headed. And I think the ruling apostles of 50 years from now, we'll have quite a different attitude about it. 